I know y'all appreciate Vicky filling in and the others who filled in in this transition period in our music ministry. Thank you. Well, so far in this series, we've looked at a couple of messages, one on about the pathway of peace that Christ uh, has for us, uh, but we have choices we have to make to find that pathway, and we talked about those a couple weeks ago. We also talked about last week that gospel proclamation that's found, oddly enough, in Genesis 3, right at the fall of humanity, God then declares, I've got a plan for you, and I've got a purpose for you, and I'm going to forgive your sin if you'll turn back to me. Now I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter Nine. Now, in this passage, there's a, a very familiar uh, verses that you're going to go, yeah, I've heard those before. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to set them in context uh, and then look at what he says coming out of those so we kind of grasp the picture. So let me set the scene for you. Uh, we are about 700 years before Christ. So that would be about 2,700 years ago. We're talking an ancient passage here, something that's not a recent writing. Uh, and and the, what has happened in the nation is some years before this, the nation of ten tri- excuse me, 12 tribes of Israel, the guy Israel, have fallen apart. Uh, when Jeroboam and Rehoboam disagreed with each other, they split the kingdom in two with ten tribes going to the north and two tribes staying in the south with the temple and the place that they were supposed to worship God. And the tribes that went north, they couldn't keep going back to Jerusalem to worship because they was now it was now in a foreign country. It was in the other land. So they decided they would set up their own ways of worship. I don't know about you, but when we set up our own ways of worship, we usually really mess it up, don't we? And that's what they did. They messed it up. They began having uh, living in spiritual darkness. They began, as the scriptures say it, whoring after false gods. They set up false images uh, to worship in, in the places they would worship. They even did this. They would sacrifice their children. And I mean literally sacrifice their children at an altar to these pagan gods. You talk about a mess. They were living in a mess. But let me tell you something, Jehovah God wasn't done with them. He had a word for him. He had a promise for him. He says, I'm going to continue to send prophets to speak to you. I'm going to continue to send prophets to call you back to my, my ways. Even if you don't do it, I'm still going to keep calling you back. And the guy that we look at today is a guy named Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom. And you're going, wait a second, I thought we were talking about the northern kingdom. We are. This guy was a prophet in the southern kingdom, but he would often write words about the northern kingdom and to the northern kingdom and encourage them to turn back and encourage them to know that God is not finished with them. I don't know about you, but I find a lot of promise in that statement that God isn't finished with me and he isn't finished with you. Our passage day centers on this. Now, what's about to happen, and not too long after this happens, this, these words are written, is that the wrath of God is going to come through the workings of a kingdom called the Assyrians. And they're going to destroy and damage and, and, and just make a mess out of the land. And the passage opens with a great reveal about what's coming in the future. And then it gives us four aspects of the promised Messiah. And what we find here is that God not only promised the gospel on the heels of the fall back in Gen- Genesis, but he also sends word through the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah is coming. And what he's going to do is he's going to reveal the Galilean. Who is the Galilean? You and I both know the Galilean is a guy named Jesus, right? That's who he is. But let's look at the passage and see what he says. Because at first first glance, you look at it and go, hang on. Verse 1 says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. So as this passage opens, what we find is something that you're going, okay, I think I've heard that word Zebulun somewhere, and that Naphtali thing is somewhere, isn't it, in the Bible? It is. This is an interesting page because if you don't have an understanding of who these people are, you kind of get lost in the weeds here, if you will. So hang in there with me. I want you to see this because God's promise is found even in these prophetic words. What he's doing here is this. He's saying, things are bad now. Just hang on. It's going to get good. It's going to get way better. You're going, okay. No gloom for her is in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of y'all. With me so far? Good. All right. So what he's talking about is two tribes. Two tribes. Remember, Israel had 12 sons. Right? And they had a nation that came into the promised land. And they were all given assigned lands that would be theirs. And in the northern part of what we call today the land of Israel is a, a highland area called now called the Galilee. But back then it was the lands of... Ta-da! Zebulun and Naphtali. That's the lands that those were. Those are the two tribes that live in that area. Think of that area as kind of like the Texas Hill Country. You ever been to the Hill Country? It's rocky. It's kind of hilly. That's how they call it the <clears throat> Hill Country. And there's, it's hard to grow some things there because there's so much rock and so much soil. But there's other things you can do in that land. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, what they could do in that most of that area was to raise sheep and goats. And they could also be great stonemasons because they had lots of rocks to work with. And they would build homes out of stone. They would shape it into stones and make those things. The men of the region did those kind of things. And what the prophet is saying here is this. He says, one day, God is going to bring something good out of the mess that you have. The people of Zebulun and the people of Naphtali were known to be some of the most wicked, vile people in that day. They were in the area that the the enemy was going to come and utterly decimate the land. These people are facing death. They're facing destruction. They're facing exile. They're facing all kinds of things that are just not pleasant things in life. And God is saying, you are living in darkness. But something good is going to come out of darkness. Something great is going to come out of the darkness. The promised Messiah would one day be shown as having been conceived in that region and then raised in that region. Now, y'all, we know the story of Jesus. Mary and Joseph were living where when God's angel came and spoke to her? They weren't living in Bethlehem. They were living up in the highlands in, in what is called Nazareth. They were living in that area. And you know, they left and they went to Bethlehem, had a baby. According to one passage, we know they went to Egypt for a while, and then they came back, and they went back to where? Do you remember? To Nazareth. They went back to the highlands, to this area. This is exactly the place that God had prophesied some 700 years before Christ's birth. This is where he was going to be at. God was going to work in this time. And in the darkness of this land, the utter paganness of this area, God says, I'm going to bring something good out of it. I'm going to bring a promise out of the darkness. I'm going to bring light out of the darkness. I'm going to bring a promised one out of the darkness. And God is going to do something great here. So he's going to reveal the Galilean, Jesus, the Galilean. But what's he going to look like? Four things I want you to see. The Messiah, first of all, will show a radiance. Look at verse 2 and 3. The people who walked in darkness, the people who have walked in darkness. Who is he talking about? Y'all remember? The people from Naphtali and Zebulun. These people who have lived in darkness have seen what? A great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So with the promise of the revelation of the Galilee, Galilean, we find four characteristics. The first one is this. He will be radiant. Those people to whom Isaiah referred in history were about to be decimated. They were about to be scattered to the four winds. They were about to be basically wiped off the face of the earth. Now, does that mean that there are no descendants of Naphtali or Zebulun available in, in, in world history anymore? There are. But, but their choices were so bad, so dis- despicable to God that he says, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. They basically cease to exist from that point forward. You're probably thinking, but I thought they came back from exile. That wasn't these folks. That's the people of Benjamin and Judah in the south not the people in the north. He says, but I'm going to bring a Messiah out of this. I'm going to bring a light out of this. Now, some of you are probably wondering, now, wait a second. If all that area is going to be decimated, it's going to be utter darkness, there's going to be nobody living there, how in the world did Mary and Joseph end up in that region? Some scholars have debated this issue because there's no clear evidence except in some histories in different places. But we know that Joseph and Mary... We're of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, again, geography. Where was Benjamin? Benjamin is in the area around Bethlehem. Y'all remember, they had to go back there in the census to be counted. Y'all remember that part of the story? Well, we're not reading that today, but you remember that story, right? They had to go back and counted it as part of the census. That'd be like us packing up on a mule and walking to, well, Lufkin, about 90 miles away. Not an easy trip. But how in the world did they get moved from Bethlehem to the Galilee. I believe it's what happened was pretty simple. It's pretty explainable by a simple migration of people. What happened is as that land became vacated by all the peoples who were destroyed, the people who were still of God, the, the people of Judah and Benjamin, the ones who did come back from captivity back to the promised land, they said, you know, we need to go possess that land. We need to put some folks up there living. That needs to be our land. And so there were people who volunteered to move up in that area. You look at the lineage of Joseph and the lineage of Mary, they're part of the people of Benjamin in the south, but yet they're living in the north. How did that happen? They went to live in that area to resettle the land. And Jesus would be conceived in that area in the north. He would be born in the south and he would be raised in the north. And yet in the very darkest region of the land, God brings the brightest sun, the most radiance that we can imagine in Jesus, the promised Messiah. He would begin his ministry in that area. You remember his first act of ministry was to what? Turn water into wine. You remember that story? You know where that happened at? That happened about three miles north of Bethlehem, a little wide spot on the road called Cana. And from there, he proceeded further north down to the Galilee, to the seashore, and began his ministry there. He rose in that region as Isaiah prophesied, the radiance of the Messiah will arrive. Second, the Messiah will also bring rejoicing. Look at verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of every his oppressor, for you, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You're going, man, that's some graphic stuff. kind of is, isn't it? In addition to him showing the radiance of promised Messiah, he's going to bring about a great rejoicing. 
In many older uh, printed copies of the, of the Bible, you will find in between the Old Testament and the New Testament a blank sheet of paper. You know what that's there for, don't you? It's not to write prayer requests or genealogies, though we often use it for that. It's there to help signify to us the silence of God between the Old and the New Testaments, that he was waiting, that something's coming, that rejoicing's on the way, that great goodness is on the way, great news is on the way, the result of Messiah's coming is on the way. And that is what I want you to see here, because out of the darkness, these people who essentially were scattered to the four winds that, that were just, just pushed away, there's 700 years come up, like, up, and here's Jesus, and now in their day they're living far from God, but God is doing it to do something great. He's going to correct them. He's going to keep working on them. He keeps bringing his wrath. And I want you to catch this. It's not an enjoyable time to be alive. Why? They were facing attack. They were facing destruction. They were facing correction. They were finding, facing possible death. But in the midst of all this, God is saying, I'm still here. My Messiah is going to come. He's going to come bring radiance to you. He's going to come bringing rejoicing to you. Just as the people of Midian had their role of correcting God's people, God is going to use this time of judgment to correct his people and to get them ready. Now, I don't know about you. God has blessed us with three kids. And they are a blessing, aren't they? I didn't get an amen on that one. That's disturbing. Okay. But in raising kids, you get to a point where you have to be not their buddy sometimes, right? You got to be the what? the daddy or the mama, and you got to bring some discipline, <clears throat> discipline to the moment. Y'all with me? Now, how many of you parents, let's just get a full here. How many of you really, really love doing that? I just love disciplining my kids. Don't you? No. I don't know of any parent that's normal that loves to do that. But we do it. Why? Because we hate our kids and we're thinking, man, I can get them. No. We do it because we What? We love our kids. Listen, God is the exact same. He brings discipline to us, not because he hates us, not because he wants to hurt us, not because he wants to bring us down, but because he wants to what? Show his great love for us. In a way, what God's doing here is trying to show his love and bring out of the judgment of his people the promise of rejoicing that his love was going to be here in Messiah. So he's going to show radiance, he's going to show rejoicing, he's also going to be remarkable. Look at verse 6. This is the one you probably know. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called, y'all can say it with me if you want to, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know that verse, don't we? We've heard it year after year, again and again. We've read it again, and we go, man, that's amazing. And what we find in this promise is he's going to bring about something that is utterly remarkable. A very familiar passage at Christmas time is this, the power of the promised one who's going to come in what? A remarkable way. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to accomplish a remarkable feat. He's going to purchase redemption for you and for me. And he will remarkably come again one day to close human history out. One commentator mentioned the remarkable means by which God brings his deliverance. Have you ever stopped to think of it? God brings his deliverance through a child. Most of us don't think children can deliver us from anything, unless maybe it's deliver us to insanity, right, Mom and Dad? Amen. 
But our kids are not our deliverers. Jesus comes as a child to bring deliverance. And he would work in a way that he's going to be both born and given to us. And he's going to be bringing a free reign to every nation. He's going to have influence everywhere. Do you know there's not one planet on one planet? There's not one planet on earth. There's not one nation on planet earth where God's name has not been proclaimed and he has not been lifted up and there aren't followers of his. Even in dark countries that we might think of like North Korea and China where Christianity is not really legal, there are followers of his. And his name will have meaning. Look at the four means there. I just want to give you a quick overview. He's going to be called what? Wonderful Counselor. He's going to be the one that comes alongside us and says, I got a better way forward for you. He's not going to be some psychoanalyst. He's not a counselor in that sense. Instead, he's going to be our guide, the one who says, I'm going to walk with you and talk with you and be with you and be your guide. He's going to be our mighty God. He's going to stand as our king. You're thinking, man, I don't want a king. King means he's in charge, doesn't it? Let me tell you something. King means he's in charge. If he's our king, he's the one that leads us. If he's the king, he's the one that guides us. And his place is not going to be equal to us, but rather it's going to be in dominion over us, to guide us, to to direct us, to, to instruct us. He's our mighty God. He's our eternal father. You know, in that word, I find this. He's the one that when I'm all alone, I'm not, because he's with us. He's our everlasting father. He's always with us, and he's our prince of peace. We, could, we have calms. You ever have doubts and fears in life? We talked about fear this morning in Sunday school a little bit. You ever have fears and doubts? I have fears and doubts all the time. I bet you're just like me. We have, I got, but you know who calms those fears? My prince of peace comes along and does that. And all of these aspects of the promised Messiah are remarkable, because without him, we simply can't have the things that he wants for us in abundance. One more thing about him before we try to apply it to our lives. He is going to show radiance. He's going to bring rejoicing. He's going to be truly remarkable, but he's also going to forever reign. Forever reign. Look at verse 7. And of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and ever, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Forth this revealed Galilean will Reign forever. You know, political leaders come and go, don't they? They serve for three, four years. They serve for eight years. They serve in different seats in government for 10 years or 20 or whatever it is. But they go away. They don't last forever. But the king that we're talking about here, this Messiah that we're talking about here, is going to reign how long? Forever. He'll be the fulfillment of the promise to David. You remember, David was promised that his, his lineage, his king would, kingdom would last forever. And the Messiah's role is going to be to bring about righteousness and, and justice and, and mercy forever. And for a people living in a treacherous time, like the people in Isaiah's day were, maybe even the way the days that we live in are, this promise seems a little far-fetched, doesn't it? You think, man, where is he? But at the same time, it's reassuring that God can do great things among us. And all of these aspects are going to be based on his zeal. You know, that's a word we don't use often anymore, is it zeal? Do you have zeal for anything? What do you have zeal for? 
The zeal of the Lord is what's going to accomplish these things. And what he's saying is that when God puts his mind to it, when God says this is going to happen, guess what, friends? It's going to happen. It's not going to stop. It's not going to go away. It's going to happen. You're going, well, some days I wonder where he is. Why doesn't he do it now? Can I tell you something? He is. You may not see the, the, the effects of it immediately, but he's still at work. And so some 700 years before the arrival of Messiah Jesus, a prophet speaks into the darkness about the promise to come one day. And that Messiah would be revealed through the baby, Jesus, conceived in the Galilee and then raised in the Galilee before he went to do his ministry. So what do we do with this? Three quick thoughts. Prophecy is always fun because you look at it and go, man, that's weird stuff. Yeah, prophecies are weird. You do your best and figure it out. Three quick thoughts and we'll be done. First of all, God's plan for life is timeless. You know, God has a plan for us and it's timeless. I'd like you to see the amazing work of God in Christ this Christmas season. As we saw last week, God's redemption through Jesus was not a second effort. It wasn't a fallback plan. God's plan all along was for us to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It wasn't like, oh, well, they messed up. Let's go to plan B. No. He knew humanity would rebel. He knew that we would need forgiveness. We would need redemption. So he made that way possible. And his plan all along for us was to be offered a human, excuse me, an amazing redemption for us as humans in the form of Jesus. This has always been God's plan. It didn't start in a manger, by the way. It started when we fell and sinned in the beginning. He knew it was coming 700 years before he did come. And here, 2,000 years later, that offer still stands. In Isaiah, what we see is God speaking through the prophet to a nation living in darkness. They had rebelled against God again. But he says, I still love you. Friends, some of you are here today and you're going, I used to be really close to God, but I've walked away. I don't think he cares about me anymore. Can I tell you something? You couldn't be anywhere further from the truth with that thought. God still loves you. His plan is timeless. He has not rejected you. He still loves you. He still wants to walk with you. In fact, in light of, and this light is going to, has purchased our redemption if we have it. Paul summed it up this way when he said about Jesus, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please understand, God's plan for all of us is for us to receive his offer of forgiveness. His plan for all of us is then to live within that plan of forgiveness the rest of our days until he takes us home to experience his forgiveness for eternity. He says, my plan doesn't change. He wants to redeem you and me from, his, from this bent we have to sin. And he wants us to not experience the final destination of all humanity without God. He said, I've got something better for you. Second, God's discipline affirms his love. Again, how many of you like being disciplined? Well, not me. I know this will shock no one, but as a kid, I, I was the uh, recipient of much discipline from my parents. And I'd sometimes get upset with them. I go, man, I just want to do my thing, you know? 
I want to go do what I want to do. Any of y'all experience life like that? That's my life, man. But you know what? My parents said, no, we love you enough to tell you, no, you can't do that. And you're not going to do that. And you're not going to be a part of that. And you are going to do this. <clears throat> and I didn't like it. But I can look back now and understand that they did that not because they hated me, but because they what? They loved me. God's great pleasure for those who receive his salvation is to do this, to grow broader and deeper in love with the Lord. It's not just he doesn't want you to go to hell. He doesn't want you to go to hell. But he wants you to live a life today in the here and now that's an amazing thing, something transformative in your life, and he will bring discipline in our lives. Any of you ever do something, I know this may not be a common experience for most of you, but if you ever sin, you know, and you feel really, really bad about it afterwards, do you know why that is? It's because God's at work. When we can sin and we don't sense anything, something's wrong. When we do something wrong and we realize it because God's convicting us, that's a good thing. Don't look at that as a bad thing. God's discipline shows his love. I'm reminded of the passage in Proverbs 13. We don't like these verses anymore because we don't like to do this. But here's what he says. Whoever spares the rod. How many of you use a rod on your kids? Okay, not how many of you want to use a rod on your kids. Okay. I said, how many of you use a rod on your... How many of you give serious discipline to your kids? Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Now, I've got to tell you, that's not a very popular opinion in today's age, is it? Oh, don't do any discipline to your kid. Let them them just live the way they are and they'll turn out just fine because we're all basically good at heart. I've got to tell you, the scriptures tell us we are not basically good at heart. We are, bent, we are born with a bent to evil that will draw us down the darkest pathways if we allow it to run its course. Moms and dads, we have a job to not spare the rod, but to show love. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline. That's, that's the calling we have in life. And God does the same thing for you and me if we're his followers. He says, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not here to harm you. I'm not here to destroy you. But I am here to convict you and to bring you back into a deeper relationship with me. The more we push him away, the easier it is to ignore him. But maybe he's saying to you today, I need to be back with him. God can take you to the proverbial woodshed sometimes when he needs to. But he loves us. And the same is true of our Heavenly Father. One more thought I want you to see and I'll be done. Knowing God brings great joy. The people to whom Isaiah wrote in that time, some 700 years before Christ, were living in great darkness. They were living in great sadness. They were living in a time when things were just awful. I, I think of what it would be like to live in a, in a time like that, and I don't really have to think too far because I think we're kind of in it today, friends. A time of darkness where everyone does their own thing and everyone's standard is their standard and even sin is being celebrated as good today. Sounds to me a lot like the nation of Israel in Isaiah's day. How far are we from God because of that? 
They've turned away from the ways and the truth of God for false gods. They, they, they didn't kind of, kind of get what they expected, but there they are. But I've got to tell you something. There's a word in this passage that we need to grasp and a word in this Christmas season that we need to understand is that we do not have to stay in those places. If the world all around you is going nuts, you don't have to join them. You don't have to walk their ways. You don't have to live their way. You can rise to a better place. We can say with the psalmist, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, God, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This guy who wrote this, David, was made some pretty poor choices in his life, but yet God still loved him. And when things really got tough and God would keep after him, he would say, God, you're going to turn the bad into good. God wants to turn your bad into good. And what we have to do is turn our lives to him fully and say, I trust you. And when we do that, we find a joy, a lightness, a joy and a blessing in that. And as we grow in the knowledge and grace, we know that his joy is growing in us and we're coming closer to him. And so it's in these places we discover his blessing. Is it possible that today, maybe you're here today for whatever reason, and God is wanting to speak to you, not because I'm talking, but because his spirit is talking about the choices you've made in your life. To say, God, I think I'm too far away from you. Can I tell you something? You're not. He loves you. He wants to bring you to him closer and closer and closer. Or maybe you're here and you've never trusted him. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe that's the step you need to take. You say, well, how do I do that? I don't want to join a church. I didn't say join a church. I said, no, Jesus. Y'all with me? There's nothing wrong with joining a church. We'll welcome you if you want to. But the more important thing is to what? No, Jesus. How do you do that? It's real simple. You pray and say, God, and prayer is just talking to God. You go, I can't see him. I got to tell you, he can see you and he's right here with you. All you got to do is turn and say, God, I know I sinned. I know I have sinned. I know I have made mistakes. But I believe that you can forgive me. Would you do that now? And if you will do that, he promises to come into your life and forgive you of your sin. And the rest of the stuff takes care of it after that. You go, well, do I need to join a church? You need to be involved in a church. You need to be around believers, yes. But that's the next step. Don't worry about that. Don't. That's like getting married and saying, well, how many kids are we going to have? I don't know, baby. We just got married, okay? Don't jump the gun. Just stay with the most important decision to trust Christ. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond publicly if you need to. And we'd love to pray with you and talk with you here at the front. If you'd like to have a conversation, we'll do that. But maybe you need to stay after the service and have a conversation. I want to let you know I'm available to do that. would love to share with you what it means to follow him and how to do that. But we want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for your blessing and your grace. God, you're so good to us. You saw in the fall of Adam and Eve and revealed to us our need and our pathway forward to find the Messiah. Some 700 years before Jesus was born, you had Isaiah speak these somewhat cryptic and strange words 
that the Messiah was coming and he would be doing these things. Father, we pray for your hand to be free in our lives today. Father, some, some in this room, Father, need to, to respond to you. Father, maybe they just need to pray right now and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I want you to come into my heart. I want you to forgive me of my sin. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I pray that they would do that. And that, Father, after that, they would then respond to whatever you call them to do next in the timing you call them to do it next. Father, we pray your hand to be free in these few moments ahead. We pray your hand would be loose in our lives in Jesus' name.